You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Uh, So let's bow our heads and let us pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the man of power. You have shown yourself to be the king. And we want to meet with you today in your word. So Holy Spirit, take these words from the page of Mark's gospel and imprint them deep on our lives. We want an encounter with you today. Amen. Uh, Well, as Alex said in her prayer a couple of weeks ago, um, I was in Lagos, Nigeria, with Fola. Fola is a member of our mission and planting team here at City Church. Uh, And it it was a great, great trip. The the idea was that we were going to go over and we're going to meet up with church pastors and planters and, and work out what it might be like to partner with a church planting church in Lagos. It was a really, really exciting time. And And on that trip, I learned lots of things about the city of Lagos. Lagos has no less than 24 million people living in it. It's astonishing, isn't it? That's 10 times the size of Manchester. What's more, its population is predicted to double by 2050. And the vast majority of people in Lagos, they identify as Christians. And the churches there, some of them are absolutely massive. Some of them have 200,000 people attending on a Sunday. They had to have this huge aircraft hangar just to contain all the people who come. It's incredible. 
And one of the things that really struck me when I was out there was how their pastors had such a big view of God. They knew that he's the God of the universe, that nothing is impossible for him. And so they were expectant. They had faith that God really could do more than all they ask or imagine. But it was also something very dark that I saw out there as well. Every pastor we spoke to without fail said that the church in Lagos was in great danger. One of the pastors called it a poison. Another pastor described it as being like a cancer. A cancer that had infiltrated the church and was strangling it from within. It's called the prosperity gospel. And proponents of the prosperity gospel, they point to verses like verse 23 of Mark chapter 9. Everything is possible for one who believes. And what they do is they take that verse, they rip it out of its context, and they say, all you need to do is have faith. If you have cancer, even if it's terminal cancer, what you need is you need to have faith. Faith that God will heal you. And if your faith is strong enough, then you will be healed. If you're poor, and Lagos is full of some of the worst poverty I've seen anywhere in the world. If you're poor, believe on God's promises. And if you believe, He'll make you rich. It's a dangerous, hateful teaching. Poison. But I guess that begs the question, well, how should we interpret verses like verse 23? And what is the faith that Jesus commends in these verses? Well, if you were here last Sunday, you'll know that last Sunday we were at the start of Mark chapter 9, and we were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. There we saw that Jesus is the man of glory. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who can keep us going through the valley of suffering. But then in verse 9, we saw the disciples descend from the mountain. And as they get down from the mountain, they meet this terrible spectacle. Look at verse 14. There's a large crowd. And the teachers of the Lord, they are arguing with the disciples who remain down the mountain. Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about? And the man, a, a father, verse 17, steps forward to explain. Now, we're going to look at what happened in these verses in three parts today. And we're going to do that by focusing on the three main characters in this account. Jesus, the disciples, and the Father. So first up, Jesus. And what we see here with Jesus is we see compassionate power. Compassionate power. Picture the scenario that the man has brought his son to Jesus He's heard all about Jesus' healing miracles that happened in Capernaum and Galilee. And he thinks, if, if I can bring my son to Jesus, then, then he'll be healed for sure. So the man comes, but Jesus is not there. So 
he takes his chance. He asks the disciples, can you do anything about this? Now, if you've ever had a sick child, you'll know something of the, the agony this father was going through. When Anna and I moved to Manchester 10 years ago now, our, our eldest, our daughter Sophie, was really, really unwell. And she was in and out of hospital for three weeks. And it was agony. We, we desperately, desperately wanted to do something to help her, but we couldn't. And, and the situation for this man, it was even worse than that. You, you see, his son hadn't simply been sick for a month or so. Verse 21, he'd been sick from childhood. You know, when children are chronically ill, it takes its toll both on the child and on the parents. And it's often really important for them to get respite. That's why there are charities like Dreams Come True. Have you heard of Dreams Come True? They, they organize for sick children and their parents to, to go on incredible holidays to the seaside or to, to Disney World to get some respite, to take their mind off what's happening. But there will be no trip to the seaside for this boy. Why? Well, because the moment he got close to the sea, the demon seized him and sought to plunge him into the inky depths. In wintertime, they couldn't even huddle around the fire when it got cold. Because the demon would throw the boy into it whenever he was in the same room. No fire guard could protect this young man. The situation here, it was truly awful. But I think, I think we probably need to think about something at this point, okay? Because we're reading this in the 21st century, aren't we? And so when we read this, and we see the son's symptoms in verse 18, just look at those with me. We're told that uh, he has seizures, he collapses to the ground, he becomes rigid, he, he foams at the mouth. That's epilepsy, isn't it? I mean, the father brings his son to Jesus and says he's possessed by a demon. And Jesus seems to, to go along with that. But, but surely we know that this is just a, a supernatural explanation for illness in a pre-scientific age. This boy needs a doctor, doesn't he? Not an exorcist. Well, if you're thinking that, just slow down for a minute. Because Jesus and his followers, they knew the difference between sickness and demon possession. Indeed, Mark in his gospel clearly distinguishes between illness and demon possession. Just check out chapter 1, verse 34, and chapter 6, verse 13. He's clear on the difference there, Mark. And when Jesus heals a fever or, or paralysis or leprosy or hemorrhaging or, or deafness or blindness, Mark always records that and describes them as illnesses that are natural in their cause, not supernatural. But things are different here with this particular illness. You know, it's not the Father and Jesus who are naive here. I think it's probably us in the 21st century. You see, in the post-modern world, we're, we have convinced ourselves that, that every crisis we face, 
face, for every crisis we face, there must be a natural solution. So, so if I get sick, then the doctor should be able to cure it. If a virus becomes a pandemic, then we must be able to vaccinate our way out of it. The earth is warming, then we must be able to use net zero to stop it happening. Now, now don't hear me wrong. I am not saying that we should reject medical help or, or reject attempts to reduce carbon emissions. I'm not even saying that the lockdown during the pandemic was wrong. But we are kidding ourselves if we think that there is a natural solution to every problem that we face. The fact that 100 years from now, every single one of you is going to be dead and in the ground shows us that there is not a natural solution to every problem we face. You see, behind every problem we face lies a dark and overwhelming reality. We live in a world that is broken by sin, where suffering and death are inevitable, and where Satan is active. Indeed, human sin and supernatural darkness, they lie behind everything that we fear, ultimately. It's all the result of the fall. It's just Satan is very happy for us to continue believing that it's all down to natural forces and continue believing that we can tame these problems by our own ingenuity. In The Usual Suspects, that the main character, Kaiser Soze, famously said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist. And that's right. But this father wasn't taken in. He recognized the work of Satan when he saw it. He knew that behind his son's sickness lay supernatural darkness. And so he brings his son to Jesus. And look at what he says. It's really interesting what the father says here. Second half of verse 22, he says, But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. There are two requirements for someone to be able to help. Firstly, they must have power. If you can, do anything. But secondly, pity. Now, now the word used there for pity is a particular word that points to Jesus' deepest reserves. It's describing the, the depths of his inner compassion. And Jesus has both power and pity. Who do you turn to when crisis hits? I guess many of us turn to ourselves, but because we have a lot of compassion for ourselves, don't we? So we have one of those two things, but all too often we discover with those big crises in life, we don't have the power we need for the things we really want it for. Some of us perhaps turn to science, I mean, science seems incredibly powerful, doesn't it? Over the past century, science has unlocked some of the greatest secrets of the universe. But science is neither compassionate nor kind. In its rawest form, survival of the fittest, science is both pragmatic and cruel. 
Only Jesus has both absolute power and absolute compassion. And look at what happens. Verse 25, Jesus speaks and the Spirit comes out. Verse 26. The same voice that spoke the universe into being is capable of casting out evil with the very same word. He he can overcome supernatural darkness, no matter how powerful it seems to be. I don't know what crisis you're facing right now, what sadness or disappointment, what heartbreak or anxiety. But I do know this. Jesus is all powerful and Jesus is all compassionate. He is the man you can believe in. That doesn't mean that he will take the situation you're in away. But what it does mean is that he will give you the power and he will show the kindness you need to carry you through that situation. Which is far more than can be said about the disciples. Uh, Just look at the disciples. That's our second point today. And what we see here is faithless self-reliance. Take a look at verse 18. Uh, The man brought his son to the disciples, but they couldn't help him. Now, it's tempting to read this and think, well, of course they couldn't help him. Jesus wasn't there. Had Jesus been there, then they could have helped him. But it actually isn't as straightforward as that. Because back in chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus had called the 12 disciples to him, and he had given them power over demons. And in chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus had sent out the disciples two by two, giving them authority over impure spirits, which means that they had power to cast out evil spirits. Jesus had given it to them. And they've been doing exactly that over the past several months. But with this young man, well, they were stumped. So what was the problem? Had they been given power to cast out one-star spirits, but not three-star evil spirits? Were they able to work with, with weaker demons, but the elite demons, that's just beyond them? That's almost certainly what they thought, and, and it's almost certainly what they were arguing with the teachers of the law about in verse 14. You see, magicians and sorcerers in the ancient world, they believed that you could cast out demons simply by using the right combination of words and actions. It, it was all about technique, like a poet reciting a poem or a surgeon carrying out surgery, like Aladdin robbing his lamp. Casting out demons was just a matter of technique. As one commentator, William Lane, puts it, the disciples had been tempted to believe that the gift they had received from Jesus, in chapter 6, verse 7, was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. They'd become... Self-confident, self-reliant, which meant that they had become faithless. Uh, Take a look at verse 19. Uh, Jesus hears what's been happening and he says, you unbelieving generation. Now, I think it's really easy to fall into this trap. Uh, There was a guy I knew back at university in Birmingham. He was from a non-Christian home, but he'd put his trust in Jesus at a Christian camp. 
And he came to Birmingham to study as a really zealous Christian. He read Christian books voraciously. He shared the gospel with everyone in his hall of residence. He was the sort of guy who would just plow into debates with unbelievers about the meaning of life. He was incredible. He became the president of the Christian Union. And he seemed like one of the most mature Christians that I knew. But after he graduated, he just fell away from Christ. Outwardly, he he looked like he was a a really going-for-it Christian. But really, it had all just been faithless self-reliance. Going through the emotions of Christian techniques, reading the right books, praying the right prayers, saying the right thing, keeping up appearances. It was faithless self-reliance. You know, City Church Manchester started in this hall... Uh, nine years ago, just over nine years ago now. Uh, when it started, we knew that it was all of God. You've got to imagine it, there were just 27 adults meeting in this massive auditorium. And we felt so weak. We, we knew that we needed God. And so we prayed. We prayed like mad. And, and God wonderfully answered our prayers. We are now 10 times the size that we were back then. We've grown from just having two nationalities to having 43 nationalities today. We've seen 50 people get baptized here in this very room. It was all of God, all the the work of the Holy Spirit. But I worry, I, I, I worry that our focus has shifted. Yes, outwardly, things at City Church, they are going really well. We have lots more people, we have lots more programs, lots of better systems in place than we had nine years ago. We have a a great staff and leadership team who are doing a great job. There is lots going on at City Church. But if the Holy Spirit was to suddenly stop working here at City Church, would anything change? Would we even notice? Is it possible that we have slipped into faithless self-reliance? Relying on our skills, our our gifts, our resources, relying on our own technique as a church. We'll, We'll take a look at the end of the passage. Verse 28, Jesus takes his disciples to a private place indoors, and there they ask him why they weren't able to drive out the Spirit. And he replies, this kind can come out only by prayer. Do you, do you see the point? There are some things that, that seemingly we can do on our own steam. And people will congratulate us for doing those things. We can gather a crowd as a church. We can put on a great show. We can even seem to develop deep and meaningful community. But if we want to see the miraculous here at City Church... If we want to see supernatural darkness defeated, if we want to see people miraculously brought from death to life, if we want to see the gospel really transform our city, then that will only happen if we get down on our knees and pray. The great reformer John Calvin said that prayer is the exercise of faith. That's right. 
Prayer is saying, God, I can't do it, but you can. Do you want to measure the faith of a church? Well, look at how it prays. And how are we doing at that? When was the last time that you personally prayed for City Church? Do you attend the twice-termly praise and prayer meeting that we have? Have you been on Zoom for the persecuted church prayer meeting? Is prayer a central part of what you do as a connect group, or is it simply a tag on at the end? I wonder, have we fallen into faithless self-reliance? Well, if we have, we need to become more like the father in this story. Let's look at how he responds at first, it seems that Jesus is, is really quite unhappy with the Father. The Father says, if you can do anything, help us. And Jesus replies, verse 23, if you can. What Jesus wants to do here is he wants to locate where the Father thinks the problem is. Does the Father think that the problem is with Jesus or with himself? You see, I I think that fundamentally there are three different ways that we can seek to approach God in prayer. The first way is what I label as functional atheism. And that is what Jesus was afraid that the Father had fallen into. Functional atheists, they pray. They know that it is right to pray, that it is the socially acceptable thing to do. So they go through the motions, they pray, they pray regularly. But they have no real expectation that God is going to do anything big. Yes, you know, he might help me pass my exams. He might help my blood test come back as all clear. But he can't do the really big things. He can't repair my broken marriage. He can't heal my porn addiction. He can't save my unbelieving children. Functional atheists think that God helps those who help themselves so they pray yes they pray but when they pray they always have a backup plan a plan b you know to to help god along after all he might not be able to deliver on what i'm asking right now so i better make sure that i have a way to make it happen if he doesn't that is functional atheism but there's another way to approach god in prayer what i've labeled Works-based religion. Let me describe that. Do you you want to know if you've fallen into this way of approaching God? Well, have you ever thought to yourself, it's not fair that God hasn't done dot, 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 given how faithful I've been to him. I haven't dated a non-Christian, so surely God should give me a Christian spouse. I've worked really, really hard for my exams. I've I've kept on reading my Bible. I've kept on coming to church. Even when I've had an exam on the Monday morning, I've come to church. So surely God should let me do really, really well in my exams. I've led my family devotions every night for the last 10 years. Surely God should give me a spouse who respects me. I've served as a connect leader week in, week out. How come... God didn't answer my prayer for an all clear from the oncologist. Workspace religion says, I've done God, now God, you bless me. 
I've worked for you, God. Now, God, you work for me. It's prosperity teaching. Give to God and he'll give to you. Give your money and he will make you rich. Give your time and he will make you successful. Give your gifts and he will bless your children. It is poison. It's crippling Lagos and it is making inroads here in Manchester. And it is the very opposite of the gospel. You see, gospel faith says what the Father says here in verse 24. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You see, gospel faith brings weakness to God, not works. It says, I I can't do it. I can't even trust you as I want to, God. So help me. Christian friend, you are never so strong as when you admit that you are utterly weak. You are never more helped than when you admit that you are utterly helpless. Gospel faith isn't, I know God is going to answer my prayers because I'm faithful. The gospel faith is, I believe, Lord, help me overcome my unbelief. Is that how you pray? Is that how I pray? Do we have gospel faith? But I want us to notice something else about gospel faith, which is frankly quite scary. Look at what happens in verses 25 to 27. The father brings his son to Jesus. Jesus commands the spirit to leave him, and there's a huge commotion. The spirit leaves, and the boy... Or he's white as a sheet, completely motionless, dead. The boy was the most precious, most valuable thing that the father had. He was his son, his heir, his his joy, his love. And the father brings him to Jesus, and he ends up dead. Listen, because this is really, really important. Gospel faith, it involves admitting your weakness. I believe, help my unbelief. But it also requires you to to bring your most valuable things to Jesus and to lay them down at his feet. I, I don't know what that is for you. For some of us, like this father, it will be our children. For others, it will be our career. For others, our spouse, our parents, our reputation. Gospel faith requires you to give those things to Jesus. I'm reminded of another Bible story. It's it's one of the, the, the most significant stories in Israel's history. It's from Genesis chapter 22. Abraham, the father of the faith, he's just received his promised son Isaac. Even though he and his wife were well beyond the age of childbearing, they miraculously were given this child Isaac. And then one day God asks Abraham to do an unthinkable thing. He says, go up Mount Moriah, take your son Isaac with you, and there offer him as a burnt offering 
Abraham is perplexed. Why is God asking this of me? But he obeys God. And the next morning, he heads up the mountain with his son, some wood, and a knife. And he reaches the top, and and Isaac is there. He is laid out over the wood, and Abraham is poised above him with knife in hand. And suddenly God calls out, stop, don't lay a hand on the boy. And a ram suddenly appears and is sacrificed in Isaac's place. Now what do you think was going through Abraham's mind as he was up that mountain with a knife above his son? What do you think? Why was he willing to do such a terrible thing? You know, we don't need to guess because actually the Bible tells us that much later on in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, we read this. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. You see, gospel faith, it recognizes weakness. Gospel faith means bringing our most valuable things to Jesus. But it also means a third thing. It means trusting in the one who raises the dead. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 27 again. Jesus takes the boy by the hand. Notice the tenderness there of the touch. And he lifts him to his feet. Now, it's obscured in our English translations, but the word that is used there in the original for lift, it is the very same word as is used in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, to describe Jesus being raised from the dead. You see, Jesus raised this boy from the dead. It was a resurrection. Human rebellion, it has ruined this world. Our rejection of God's rule in our lives, it has spilled out toxic waste everywhere. Sickness, poverty, Relational breakdown, hopelessness, death. It's all the result of our sin. But Jesus has promised to put it all right. To remove the toxic waste. Through taking that waste on himself, on the cross, being punished with the punishment that we deserve. He did it so that he could renew the world. You know, the problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it expects too much of God. It doesn't expect anywhere near enough. It settles for health when we've been promised life. It settles for wealth when we've been promised the one who owns absolutely everything. It it settles for success when we've been promised forgiveness of sin and reconciliation. It settles for now when we've been promised forever. It settles for stuff when we've been promised resurrection. My friends, desire more in this life. Recognize your weakness. Bring your most valuable things to Jesus and receive life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. Lord, help us to come to you with gospel faith.
realizing that we do not bring anything in our hands except the sin we need saving from. Help us to lay our valuable things down before you. Enable us to turn and receive resurrection life in you. Amen.